Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Maybe they'll fake it, right? Why would you not? Hey, uh, you got silver, but this could still be some money, but not if you look not happy about it. So if you win a bronze, you almost got nothing. You're naturally comparing yourself to fourth place, somebody who's lost to history. Whereas if you got the silver, you were almost the best in the world, but you're not. You're the first loser. You know, peak end rule and Kahneman and evoking a memory and therefore doing what clearly the brand wanted to do, which is to make their name memorable because they weren't memorable. Well, Colin, we are lucky to have a guest back with us. This is our first second time guest with us. So I don't know what that says about him, but we're glad to have him. It says he's very popular. It's uh, Yeah, and uh, is not guarded enough in terms of his calendar, I think is what it says. <laughs> Do I get a medal or some sort of award for this? Or? Well, let's see how this goes. Let's slow down. <laughs> ahead of There's some incentive here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll grade you at the end. We have with us today Dr. Bill Hedgecock, who's uh, at the University of Minnesota. Last time we had him on a few weeks ago, we had him talk about some of the latest technology in, in terms of you know, how we can measure people's emotions without directly asking about them. So facial recognition and facial emotional coding. Bill's one of the leaders at the forefront of that within the academic marketing community. And then I, I think we're just continuing this conversation today. We're going to go more into the, some of the findings and some of the theories that we can use this technology for. Is that right, Bill? That sounds good to me. All right. So, Bill, one of the things that struck me, and I don't know how you want to play this, but one of the things that struck me was the work that you did on the Olympic medals. Maybe do you want to start off there? Sure. You know, one of the values of using this kind of technology is we have a better idea of why people have certain reactions or certain kinds of behaviors, right? So actually, it might make sense to start you know, talking about a behavior that you might see in the marketing world, and then I could tell you about the Olympics. So Okay. We intuitively think that people are going to be happier when they have a better outcome than a worse outcome, right? It just makes sense. Yep. So if your customer receives a package in three days, they're probably less happy than if they got it in two, right? And people are willing to pay to get it faster or they'll be disappointed if they get it slower. If people are waiting in your store for three minutes to check out, they're probably less happy than someone who waited one, right? Makes sense. Sure. So that makes sense. But then again, I can give an example with the Olympics that most people understand and think that the results might be different. So my question to you is, who's happier, the person who receives the silver medal or the person who gets the bronze? You would intuitively say it's the person that gets the silver medal because they've come second. Yeah, objectively, it should be the one, right? I mean, silver is better than bronze. It's kind of nice. But actually, when I ask people, I get a different response, right? A lot of people think, oddly enough, the bronze medalist is happier than the silver, right? Well, And I mean, my question is, I could quiz Ryan. I'm pretty sure he knows the answer to this already, though. 
Oh, no pressure. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no prize for you, mate. I'm afraid we don't give prizes out for hosts. Just out of class, so I'm going to call on the class to respond. But yeah, so why would that be the case? Like, why might bronze be happier than silver? Well, my explanation is the different reference points that they had. So if you win a bronze, you almost got nothing. Yeah, you, you're naturally comparing yourself to fourth place, somebody who's lost to history. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you got the silver, you were almost the best in the world, but you're not. You're the first loser. Yeah, right. And a lot of people understand that. So basically, it's a sort of counterfactual. Like if you're sitting there on the medal stand and you look over to the person sitting there in the audience who got fourth place, you think, hey, third place is looking pretty good right now. Yeah. I could be that person that no one's looking at. But Silver is sitting here going, I was a split second away from being first. Yeah. Right. So it turns out that the objectively better outcome actually made people less happy. And by the way, there could be other counterfactuals that happen. So it could be that Silver was supposed to get gold. Right. So, hey, I was supposed to do better, so I'm less happy. And maybe bronze mm-hmm. was supposed to be fifth place, and they're ecstatic that they were on the medal stand. Right. That Michaela Mulroney picture, right? The silver medalist at the Olympics a couple of years ago who had that really sour face. She was supposed to take gold. She was supposed to be the world champion. Yeah. She's a great example to anyone over, you know, 28 or so, because it was a few years ago. But you're right. Michaela Moroni, she was a fantastic vaulter, way better than anyone had ever seen before. In fact, I have this photo of the judges with their jaws actually dropped. These are, <laughs> these, these are Olympic wow. judges going, what did I just see? Right. But she didn't do it in one of her jumps. And she was very unhappy about getting second. And you realize you know, why that could be the case. So here's the interesting thing. Intuitively, a lot of people understand that right away with the Olympic medalists. But that could also be true in the rest of our life. Right. So, again, when I'm standing in line, if I expected this, you know, I walk into a Starbucks and I expected to take two or three minutes. If it takes a minute, I think this is great right? This is a lot faster than I thought. Sure. But in some other store, I go in and I wait just two minutes and I'm like, this is outrageous. I should have been done Mm -hmm. faster. So we have these sort of counterfactuals and things. And we can measure some of these things. How are people reacting with, let's say, facial expression analysis? So you started by asking about this Olympic medal stand photo. Yeah. So what did you actually do with that then? Yeah. So here's what we did. There had been some prior research about counterfactuals, so we had a pretty good idea that we were going to find out that silver medalists were less happy than bronze, but we wanted to look at some other things. So what we did is we went out and we pulled up all the medal stand photos we could for, it turns out, it was the last five years of the Summer Olympics. We tried to go back further than that, but the number of photos available to us started dwindling quickly. And we got these both online, but also we got permission from the Olympic Committee. They just made a new repository of photos, and uh, we were able to pull these medal stand photos. So we went through all of them. We found photos where the three people were standing up on the stands at the same time. And we compared the expressions for people who got gold, bronze, and silver. And since we've already talked about it, I think you understand the main finding, right? The main finding here is, by the way, I, I guess I didn't say gold was the happiest. It doesn't matter. Gold's awesome. I mean, right? So, <laughs> no so some people, yeah, some people think, oh, bronze is happy. No, gold's <laughs> awesome. So the gold medalist was pretty happy, right? Bronze was more and silver was the least, right? But what we're also able to do, since we had so much data, we had hundreds of photos, we were able to compare other things like what were the counterfactuals? So we know one counterfactual could be, well, I could have gotten fourth or first. 
But there's other things like we knew what they were rated as, you know, what Mm -hmm. place were they supposed to get? We could go out to the Sports Illustrated and see ahead of the games, what did people think they would get? We could look at race differences. We could look at gender differences. We could look at changes over time, right? So for example, one of my research assistants thought because there's more sponsorships now, and not only sponsorships, but athletes get training on how to deal with sponsorships. You know, maybe they'll fake it, right? I mean, why would you not? Hey, uh, you got silver, but this could still be some money, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. But not if you look not happy about it. So maybe this would change over time. So we went through and analyzed these factors as well. Did you pick up anything on the frequency of winning gold? So I'm thinking about somebody like Mark Spitz or Brown. Thorpe or somebody like that, you know, that I've won another one. It's only, you know, that's seven that I've got. Did anything come out on that? You know, that's a great question. Actually, we didn't look at that. Right. That's a very good point. We should definitely take a look. I'm a little concerned with small numbers. But then again, since sure. we have five years of Olympics, there's a reasonable chance we could certainly take a look. So, yeah, we should take a look. And was there anything, whilst you say gold was obviously the number one, but taking the point about, you know, I could have been fourth and had nothing. Was there much differential between third and first in happiness? Well, let's see, third and first. Yeah, so it was definitely statistically significant. So it does turn out most of the people are smiling. If you just look at the photos, you realize people smile. But actually, you often do see the third place, you know, smiling, but it's not this huge smile. It's like, hey, I'm here, but I'm not ecstatic. Where gold is, you know, has this big grin on their face. And the big difference here that I want to let the listeners know is that you can tell between, or the technology can tell between a genuine smile and a false smile. That's a great point. And this is one of the things we looked at that past research hadn't been able to look at or they didn't. So again, we had larger statistical strengths. So we could say, for example, the counterfactual of fourth versus first was part of the reason they had this smile. But we could also look at things and realize that the reason we got this pattern of results was also partially driven by the place they were supposed to be. Right. But one of our questions was, when we look at them, is this effect driven purely based on the sort of genuine smile or are they maybe faking it, right? So I think most people are familiar with this, right? If you look at an individual and you tell them to smile for a photo, a lot of people can't fake it very well, right? You show your teeth, but there's just something that doesn't seem genuine, And that something, by the way, is in the eyes, right? Are the eyes sparkling? Or what it is, is it's actually the muscles around the eyes that contract. It turns out the muscles around the eyes, well, people call them involuntary, but I I call them less voluntary. It's hard for people to fake that, except people like models. They've learned how to do it. So we were able to look at that and see, you know, for example, maybe we would not see a difference in the fake smile because everyone's figuring out, hey, I should look happy, but maybe we'd see is it genuine or not. And it turns out we got a very similar pattern of results in both cases. Right. Fascinating. Where does this sort of take us to in terms of thinking about using this in the real world? I mean, is there, I know one of the other things that um, we were going to chat through was just around how people use this in TV advertising and stuff like that. Well, I think the Olympics, in specific, this example, I think, shows you the power of both combining like behavioral economics and this sort of new technology. Yeah. 
right? So if we want to make sense of this pattern of results, we have to have some theory ahead of time about why this might be happening, right? So we know that people had certain expectations. Like, for example, if we didn't know that one counterfactual would be what place they thought they were going to get, we wouldn't even know enough to measure that. Right. Similar idea in, let's say, a store. If you say, well, my competitor has a different amount of wait time. Well, then maybe I want to analyze, you know, people who are likely to have gone to your competitor. Do they have a different pattern of results? Or if we know the weather is important, you know, using the two things we can start to measure. By the way, I, I say both because the behavioral economics is great. But what you'll sometimes find is there's three or four theories that tell you different patterns of results. Yeah. So then it's good to go through and not just look at your ultimate measurement, let's say sales or happiness or something, but also have these sort of intervening measures like the facial expression, because then I can say, you know, here are these three theories about why people should be reacting a certain way. It turns out the facial expression supports one of them, and then that drives the behavior. So that'll really help disentangle and be more powerful than just using one of these techniques alone. So can I ask a question? So I'm familiar with the original study that was done on this. So the researchers back in the 1980s, I think, had people look at pictures from the Olympics and then rate how they did. So the methodology there was they would show a picture to a group of humans. Those humans would then evaluate them, kind of rate it on a scale. How happy does this person look? Can you explain methodologically what you did differently from that and maybe what advantages your methods had over what had been previously done? Yep. So you're absolutely right. The researchers before had humans go through and and do the coding, which actually is good. Humans are very, very good at identifying faces and facial expressions, better than computers in many ways. Okay, So we shouldn't get that wrong. Mm -hmm. But computers have some advantages. For example, the computer is not going to be biased. It doesn't care if people got gold, bronze, or silver. It's not going to give me a different answer. It's very objective. The other thing is it's insanely fast. Mm. So, for example, that study limited it just to one year of Olympics, a relatively small number of photos. Part of the reason is it was very time intensive to have multiple people respond and evaluate each facial expression. Right. So because for each one to be reliable, it would need to be measured by a number of different people. Yeah. And you get some disagreements between people. Now, by the way, that's fine. And, and that's okay. In fact, three human reviewers might give you, you know, as good or even slightly stronger answers than an automated technique, you know, in some scenarios. But, you know, in the case of these Olympic photos, it was A good advantage, not enormous, but imagine now if we want to look at TV commercials and we're talking about 30 frames a second that I'm encoding people's facial expressions for a minute. Right. And now I want to look at a thousand people, their facial expressions, and I want to compare male versus female and and this demographic versus another. You start getting to the point where the manual encoding just, you just can't scale it. So there are just some advantages of this. Yeah. So for example, in our study, we're able to look at many more factors. Like I said, we could look at more than one kind of counterfactual. We could look at what place they thought they were going to get, you know, compared to what place they did get. Or Colin's idea of looking at how many times have they won. Yeah, you know, we could look at gender and so on. These other studies did not have enough statistical strength to do that because they just didn't have as much data as we did. And is there any so what I'm thinking is there could be some cultures, Americans tend to be more expressive than Japanese. 
So, you know, the degree of happiness that somebody would have. So I'm wondering whether it picks up that differences between those cultures. That's a great question. So there definitely are cultural differences. There are cultural differences not only in the degree, but also, for example, when is it appropriate to show expressions? Or, for example, you know, humor is just different. You could say the same joke in two or three different countries and get a different response. So there will be cultural differences. We expected that in our study. We didn't see large results for that. But I know in other kinds of studies, so for example, looking at advertisements or something, you'll definitely notice differences between cultures. And that's, again, one of these powers of using the automated technique I can go through now and study, let's say, 100 people in the U.S., 100 people in Canada and see are they responding differently where the manual encoding or other techniques might be um, difficult or too costly to do that. And so building on that, then I'm sure you've seen these where you've got some adverts that are effectively global and therefore understanding the effect on just because an advert works in America doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in Germany or Korea or whatever else. So therefore, you because of the speed of the technology and availability, you can actually run those tests. Absolutely. That's a huge problem for companies. And, and it's not just cost effectiveness, right? So if, if you're going to run an advertisement in 100 countries, making 100 different ads would be costly. But even beyond that, you start saying, but I'm trying to communicate the same message across these countries because I have a specific brand. And it turns out if I say the same thing in two, three, four countries, I get a different interpretation. Oh, well, that's yeah. a huge problem now, right? So actually running exactly the same ad may not be what you want to do. You want to communicate the same sort of thing. So how do you do this? Again, the facial expression encoding could be a very effective way to do this. And in fact, companies are doing this because, again, it's very scalable. It could be cost effective that way. Facial expressions, while there are cultural difference on why you would do that, the technology works across races and cultures. You know, So if you're trying to get the same emotional response, you have a reasonable chance that if you get the same measurement across these two cultures, that you're getting the same response in the person. Now, by the way, it may not be perfect, but there are all kinds of problems with asking them or translating in two different languages. You know, the facial expression probably is as good or better than any other technique as far as getting cross-cultural differences and trying to equate them. Yeah, so one of the things that we would certainly look at, suggest, is first of all, you should be trying to, and now I'm thinking about large corporates that we tend to deal with, you should be looking at what's the experience that you're trying to deliver to your customers and therefore what emotions you should be trying to evoke. And those emotions should be ones that drive value for you. And therefore, for me, where this sort of slot scene is, that you can therefore measure the output, i.e. you can run an advert, you can do something even from a digital experience and go, have we got, what's the output for people in America? What's the output for people in Korea or whatever it may be, Africa or whatever else? You know, And is that the same output that we want? Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. And this technology can be very effective to do that. And I guess at the end of the day, there may be parts of it that could be misinterpreted, but then from a cost-effective perspective, because I think that most of the marketing, a lot of marketing budget is therefore done 
they're not reusing that material worldwide they're creating local things and the challenge with that becomes then just consistency of message and consistency of brand and costing so you end up getting a there's a lot of um economies of scale to be made it could be that you and again i'm hypothesizing here it could be that there's just you know 30 seconds or 10 seconds that you need to change in that digital experience or in that advert that would actually make a difference in when you're playing it in korea as opposed to playing it in the states i agree and yeah when you speak to people about this sometimes people start saying well okay, if I can test a whole bunch of these things and then measure the effectiveness, do I even need creative people anymore? Because I could just test a whole bunch of things and just do what works. And the answer is no, you can't get rid of your creative people because as you're saying, like, you know, this gives you a way of measuring, did you do something effective? But still the art and the skill of, of understanding how to communicate your message you know, to different cultures, this technology doesn't take it away. What it helps you do is refine it and measure and see if you're doing it effectively. Yeah, no, I, for two reasons, I, I would agree. A, because you need the creative people at the beginning to come up with something creative that would evoke those emotions. And the second one is my son's a creative person in advertising, so I don't want him to lose his job. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I think it just makes him more valuable, right? Because we can actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of intuition and most of the time you're right. But then every once in a while you say, oh, I got it a little bit wrong, but now I know how to fix it. Yeah. Doing things like eye tracking and facial expression encoding just helps sort of tweak it and make it a little bit better. Yeah. I have to say, though, having uh, traveling a lot internationally, you do see adverts and they just, they gnaw at you sometimes. <laughs> and again, that must be part of what we're talking about, which is they're trying to make it global, but actually it's, you know, maybe it's built actually for one market and they're just trying to get some economies of scale by running it out there. They should be using this type of technology to test it before they do. Hi, this is Colin Shaw. It was great to see over 1,200 people register for my first webinar with Freshworks, where we were looking at a fresh take on customer experience. I hope you can join me for the second in this series. And in this webinar, we're going to be looking at five behavioral economic practices to enhance your customer experience. This is going to take place on Wednesday, July 10th at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. That's Wednesday, July 10th at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. To register, please go to the bit.ly link, which is bit.ly backslash freshtake2. That's bit.ly backslash freshtake2 and register. And I look forward to seeing you there. Bye-bye. So what does this mean that we should be doing then? What would you suggest that people should take away and do? Well, I guess I'd say, you know, this technology can be effective as long as you know what you're trying to accomplish Accomplish here. Yeah. Actually, I think one of the things I could do is give you an example of where I think it's used the most right now in industry. I think it's shown its most value in areas of like TV advertising. Would you be interested in hearing about that? Yeah, absolutely. Please. So it's very hard to know exactly how companies are using this technology. It's still relatively new, and some companies don't want to give away competitive advantages. Some companies don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they'll get blowback if people are concerned about privacy and so on. But what, what I can glean from talking to companies and just being around the industry is it seems one of the most frequent uses, and probably the most frequent use, is advertising testing. 
right? Yeah. So TV, radio, but mostly TV ads, right? And again, we've talked around this, but you can see how this makes a lot of sense. So you have a TV ad, you have some strong ideas about how you want people to be engaged. Even more so, you want them to be engaged in certain emotional ways, right? So here you put out an ad and you say, well, we're expecting them to find it funny here or be concerned here or be disgusted or so on, right? Yeah. So you can see now why the software makes a lot of sense. You're saying, well, here's my expectation. I'd want them to have these sorts of emotions. I can test it and see, do I get the same response for young versus old, for male versus female, for one race versus another, and so on. You could do it quite cost-effectively. You can compare then across cultures and so on. So for example, a few years back, Unilever started testing all their advertisements worldwide using facial expression analysis. And Unilever, for those of you who don't know, everyone has something from Unilever in their house, probably, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom. But they have brands like Lipton, Dove, I think some Axe. maybe Axe body spray. That's what's in Ryan's house, I'm sure. Yes, lots and lots of that. <laughs> I keep them in my office too. Yeah. Well, sometimes, yeah, you need to refresh it every once in a while. So they have a lot of, you know, you haven't seen an ad from Unilever normally, but you've seen an ad, let's say, from Axe Body Spray or so on. Again, they're going out and selling these products in 100 countries or more, and they decide to start testing it. And it makes a lot of sense. They can put this out. This can be done online. So you can use webcams to record oh, wow. videos. That's really useful. And what this means is, in a very short amount of time. If you have creative, you can put it out there and within one or two days, you can have a representative sample of people responding to your advertisement, right? Sure. Now, Unilever has not called me up and given me all kinds of information about how they use this, but we've gone in our own lab and tried to test it out to get an intuition on how it works. And I can tell you, it, it just makes sense when, when you actually see the data. So let me try to help you visualize what one of our studies would look like. Do you remember, this is an old ad, uh, GoDaddy ad where they had, right, GoDaddy does the internet websites. Yeah. And they had an ad where they had an attractive model that ended up kissing a less attractive computer programmer. I remember that ad. Remember this ad? Yes, right? vaguely. So this is years ago. So basically, the whole ad's talking about the benefits of using their technology or them versus someone else. By the way, I'd say two or three years before, no one had even heard of them, right? So their first few years, they put out these sort of startling ads. And people think, right, ads are trying to maybe make you feel sad if it's for a donation or happy. It turns out in this ad, they were also looking for things like disgust, right? Because they wanted their ad to stick out from all the other ads played during the Super Bowl. All right. So what you see during the ad is the two are standing there, they're talking about the benefits or they're sitting and they're talking about the benefits. And at some point they turn to each other and start to kiss. Well, frankly, I don't care how attractive the people are. You zoom in on people kissing and add the audio and it's a little like, I'm not interested in hearing this, right? (laughs) You're a true romantic, Bill. We've always said that about you. I've never been accused of that. Uh, So here they are watching this ad and you, right, we know what we're expecting. So I don't have to call up GoDaddy and say, hey, what were you hoping for? It's like, I want people to be sort of shocked and disgusted and then think it's funny. Sure. Right. They'll remember my ad later. And again, we talked about in our last one about this idea of storylines. Someone else may have a completely different storyline and a different kind of emotions going along. But the people who made the creative for GoDaddy know what they're hoping for. So Mm -hmm. we tested 
tested this and we, we tested this in the lab. And honestly, I tested this in a couple of classes to show students how this could work. And we always got the same set of results. It was a very powerful ad that way in that, you know, I don't know if this technique was effective. I think it was, but I can tell you that they accomplished what they were set out to do. So what you see is we have both eye tracking and facial expression encoding. And what that means is between 30 and 60 times a second, I know exactly where they're looking and I know what their facial expression is and probably how they're reacting, right? And throughout the ad, then you see people sort of engaged, but not really with much of a facial expression. The two turn to look at each other and you see people sort of start to focus their attention, like what's going to happen. You see a lot of disgust showing up. I mean, we have bar charts of this and the, it just goes <laughs> off off the road. And then what you see, what's really funny is the men thinks it's funny pretty early on and the women think it's funny later on. And what it is, right. is the men think it's funny when they're kissing pretty quickly the women think it's funny when the punchline comes up, right? Now, I don't know if this was their expectation, but it's a very strong effect. Mm -hmm. But again, if you can visualize what I'm talking about, this is very strong for the people who made the creative. What I was thinking is, and this ties into a a previous podcast that Ron and I was going through recently, you know, peak end rule and Kahneman and, you know, evoking a memory and therefore doing what clearly the brand wanted to do, which is to make their name memorable because they weren't memorable. Yep. Now, I would debate whether making it memorable for disgust is a good idea, but um, <laughs> it's a different kettle of fish. I guess it was humor more at the end of the day. Generally speaking, I would agree, right? We want people to associate us with positive things. So, for example, many companies don't advertise during the news because they're afraid they'll you know, be unlucky and have their ad right after some bad news thing. And they say, I'd prefer to do it during something like the Super Bowl where you're feeling patriotic or something. But yeah. Yeah. So again, like it makes so much sense to me that this is an effective way to use this kind of technology, because here you're looking at this ad and you say, here's my expectation. Did it happen? Let's say it didn't. So it it worked for GoDaddy, but let's say it didn't. Well, now I can look at every single second and say, well, is it working here or no. And I can also look at things like eye tracking to say, oh, well, this is why. I mean, the punchline's over here, but they were distracted over here. Yes. So now I can know when did it go wrong, what went wrong, and I can maybe even fix it, right? It's giving me an intuition. And this is one thing people don't always think about with marketing. We don't just want to put an ad out and say, is it good or bad? If it's okay, how do you fix it? Sure. And I think the same applies in a digital experience. Yeah, it's just it's clearly over a shorter period of time. But, you know, somebody coming into their digital experience, how are they feeling? Somebody clicking through various different things, are they being distracted? Are you are the emotions that they are feeling the emotions that you want them to feel and the emotions that drive value? And if they're not, then what is it that you then need to do to change? Where is the peak emotion that they're feeling in that experience? What's the end emotion that they're feeling in that experience? So a large part for me is a lot of these digital transformation programs that are being run, you know, I would be 100% using this technology to find out whether the digital transformation that I have just implemented is or ideally going to implement and then do implement actually hits on the emotions that I want them to hit rather than which is what I'm 90% sure of what's happening today, which is they just do stuff Mm -hmm. and then ask survey questions afterwards, which seems madness to me. Mm -hmm.
Okay, so I think we're going to need to draw this to a close, guys. Ryan, anything from you on what you think people should be doing? Well, Colin likes to talk about you know genuine emotion measurement and, and the idea that you know asking people to think back on what they were feeling later might not be very good. And the way that Bill described this study here, I think, raises a, a parallel issue, which is that a lot of times when we conduct market research of any kind we are unintentionally putting people in a different state of mind than they would be in nature encountering that same information, right? So if you are if you want to test your advertising, you know, you pull people into a theater, you have them watch the clip, you have them think about it deeply, you know, you maybe put them in a focus group where they can talk about it for an hour. And then the way people experience an ad is, you know, when they're fully distracted and, you know, thinking about something else and it strikes me that some of these techniques that don't rely on as much kind of overt introspection and are getting people's automatic real-time reactions are getting closer to that, where we want to get people reacting as we're measuring them in the same way that they would be reacting if they were watching TV at home. And so the fact that they can conduct some of this research on people's computers, where they're now watching a lot of ads, where it can be kind of this automatic measurement of what's going on, it strikes me we're going to get better data, more useful data in that way. So that to me is exciting. No, absolutely. And Bill, just before we depart, how can, if people want to get hold of you, how can they get hold of you? Well, they can look me up at the University of Minnesota. My last name is Hedgecock. Wonderful. Or send me an email and I will give you Bill's personal cell phone number. I've got no problem doing that at all. That'd be fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> or just genuinely drop us a line at uh, contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. And we'll we'll send it on to young Bill. So thank you very much, Bill. The last session we did got great reviews. So it was um, really good for you to come on again and talk about this subject. I think this is a fascinating subject. And I think that this is the type of thing that people are going to be doing in the next few years we're just at the ground floor of understanding all this stuff so if anybody wants any further information then please just contact us at uh, contact at beyondphilosophy.com that's contact at beyondphilosophy.com and we look forward to talking to you next week so thanks very much everybody bye-bye bye This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>